Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne podcast, and I am so excited today to have Lane Kawaoka on here with me, and he is coming to us from Hawaii. So everybody uh, here on the mainland, we are all extremely jealous with all this low, low temperatures and snow. Uh, but with that, how's it going, man? Uh, it's pretty cold here too. It's like in the low seventies, you know. Just another day here. <laughs> That's horrible, for man. Me. Horrible, Hello, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's. I am uh, beyond jealous, but I'm excited to get out there. As I was mentioned to you before the podcast came out, be headed to Maui, so that'll be nice to get out there and spend a week with the wife and take a break uh, in the middle of winter. It, it tends to be a, a tradition for all of us, right? You got to head out to Hawaii during this time of year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, hopefully, it'll be warm. It'll warm up for you. I hope so. Hey, listen, if it's above 50 (laughs) degrees, it's going to be warm for me. So (laughs) now tell me, how did you get started in real estate? Give me some, just some of your background here. Uh, You know, you're on Hawaii. How did you get in the real estate world? Yes, I started investing back in 2009. Um, I kind of became an accidental landlord. But prior to that, you know, just another I walked the linear path of my parents told me to go to school, study hard, get a good job. I eventually became an engineer and started working out on the road, um, as most young professionals do. And I, again, followed all the financial dogma, which I don't quite agree with, like buying a house to live in. Um, so I was, had this big house in Seattle and I was just never home. So I just started renting it out and you know, 2200 bucks a month for rent. And minus the, the PITI, there was you know, cash flow. And I was like, wow, if I keep doing this again and again, I'll be out of the rat race. So that was kind of the start to it all. Nice. Started out house hacking. I love it. That's awesome, man. And uh, now, were you, wor- you were working at the time in Seattle. That's correct. But, uh, you know, I did construction management. So it kind of took me all over the, the lot, lot of Montana, Dakotas, Nebraska out there. Okay. And what were you building? What was the construction management part? Was it housing? We were building railroads. Railroads? So my, my, kinda, my job was kind of the like track supervisor for a bunch of union guys. and It was just not fun. I, mean, yeah. I don't miss those days at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Out Dude, in North Dakota, I can imagine. Well, I mean, hard, hard work is manual labor, but this was definitely not fun. I mean, with all the people issues, right? That's oh, what, yeah. It's all about. So you just kept buying houses then? Yeah, I bought the next one. I bought, you know, the first one was an A-class rental. Uh, the next thing I kind of realized, well, maybe if I don't buy it, it's a nice place. I get a little bit more bang for my buck in terms of rents. But around 2012, as you know, most people know, that prices started to come back up. And I started to realize a lot of sophisticated investors, they invest for cash flow. And they don't buy in primary markets such as Seattle, California, Hawaii, New York. So at that point, I tried out one of these turnkey rentals in Birmingham, and then shoot, the thing worked. So I sold all the Seattle properties, and around 2015, I had 11 single-family homes scattered throughout the country, Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, Pennsylvania. 
That's awesome. I love, you know, for me, I'm, I'm in Boise, Idaho, which is not a first-tier market by any means. Um, but the price is now reflected, and um, that has been a huge issue. As you know, with Seattle, um, that California migration has just skyrocketed housing prices, and cash flow is virtually unattainable, you know, in – I don't want to say unattainable because nothing's unattainable. But it's very difficult to get well-cash-flowing um, – uh, real estate in in single family housing here in our market, and so I know a lot of people we're looking. You know, we go towards the Midwest, we go to other areas like that, and then there's this idea though of well, how am I going to pull this off? Because I'm not from the Midwest, I don't know that how well I understand those markets. And um, two on top of that, how do I manage it? How did you get over? Was that ever an issue for you being out of state or being far away? Did that ever bother you? Yeah, I mean, it sounds daunting, right? But I mean, once you get into it, it's one thing at a time. You know, I mean, you could get started with a turnkey rental, which, you know, a rehabber fixes fixes up the major components, gets it all ready for you. Some guys will even put a tenant in there for you. And some outfits will even do the property management for you, maybe under the same roof or under the, you know, under the same company or maybe a different company. But, you know, it can, it can be like pretty simple. Um, as close to rental property on trading wheels as you can get. But, you know, I did that initially, but then once I figured out that it wasn't that hard, that's when I started to get build my own mini teams of brokers, property managers. Property manager is probably the most important part of this. And how'd you, you start out with brokers? Pro- yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How'd you start out with uh, the property management? Yeah, so you know, this is a, a networking game, right? Find other pure passive investors, see who they're working with, because you know you don't want to work with the people that go on Yelp.com or the big brokerages houses, because you're just working with the people who can't sell houses. And if you can't sell a house, you definitely can't manage properties as a PM. So a lot of this is just finding good referrals to work with and kind of just starting that relationship out there. Okay. Now, now, why don't you explain here? I, I want to take a little step back here. We're talking about this. What is the structure of this turnkey property? Like, what does that look like? You know, we say turnkey. I've had some guests. I, it's been something I've been fascinated by. What does that mean, though, to particularly to you? When you say turnkey investing in houses, what's that mean? When I think of it, um, I'm kind of not a little whiny baby because I assume I have to do everything. Right. So when I think of turnkey, I think of at the very least somebody has taken a crappie house, put in maybe about twenty to thirty, forty thousand dollars of upgrades, and now selling that property essentially retail price. Some of these guys will sell will definitely sell it above retail price. But hey, as an out of state investor, um, you know, it's good enough, right? I mean you're not you're not doing anything. <laughs> you're not gonna get net major amounts of equity. But for a high-paid professional, you know, like the birth strategy, just in my opinion, is you know, for guys lower net worth who are trying to grow their net worth. For a lot of guys, higher net worth, the issues are it's just time, time intensive. Time is money, mm-hmm. right? A lot of my clients, like doctors, dentists, lawyers, they can go work the weekend and make way more money that they could ever get in a fur without all the risk. Um, I never liked the idea of having partners. I mean, today I do syndication deals with high net worth partners, but I never liked the idea of sending 30 to 50 grand 
to some dude who to fix my house without you know you don't have recourse right you don't have any way to really inspect them you could do an inspector but it's just hard when you're remote you're not there to look at and most people you know especially if they have an it background they don't have the expertise to even know what they're looking at right to inspect in the first place um and it's just a matter of time before one of these guys something happens in their life and their family and they steal your money um but yeah i mean that's why i kind of you know i think turnkey is a great way to get started and you know, for a lot of high net worth guys to at least get past that initial stage and then eventually move to private placements and syndications, a much more scalable um, asset a way of, you know, getting into many assets, right? Mobile home parks. I do a lot of apartments, office space, self-storage. And I think it's just a way to get going after you hit a credit status, especially. So you kind of moved up, you did um, uh, this turnkey caught the bug, so to speak, and said, all right, I got to get some more of this. And then you moved up into more commercial. Right, right. Like, so the, basically what I saw, and for people who are still, you know, got a few rental properties, I mean, I had 11 in 2015 and every month, every, like probably once or twice a year, I had an eviction. No big deal. I mean, sometimes maybe one third of the evictions ended up to be a $10,000 repair bill or something on that scale. But property managers taking care of all this nonsense, right? Um, But you also have, with 11 rentals, maybe some kind of big catastrophe that happened every quarter, like a tree falling on the house. Or I guess they're not really big catastrophes. It's just, you know, issues that come up. Um, There's a storm that floods your basement or pipes freeze, right? This time of year, Um, something like that happens. But you know, for 11 rentals, the passive cash flow number was what, maybe a few thousand dollars, which is great. Awesome. I mean, I would have loved to have that when I first started, but I don't know what American family can survive off 3000 bucks, mm-hmm. right? Most of the people in our circles who talk about the magic number being $10,000 or more. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need 30 of these houses. So now you're talking about eviction every other month, some kind of big issue happening every two weeks definitely not scalable. And this is where I kind of started to pay to get into different masterminds, get around more higher net worth investors. And all of them are saying the same things. You know, they all diversify in different private placements and syndications with different partners, different geographic areas, different asset classes. And the one common thing was, boy, were we glad that we got rid of those direct rental properties. Yeah, I I skipped them completely. Because of the same reason, it, one of the other problems is the, when you had, you know, I was in sales. I did a um, health benefits brokerage sales, um, so we were highly paid. And the problem that you ran into there was we didn't get a lot of tax benefits from them either. So all of a sudden, in the small single family houses really lost their. Uh, whole idea when I was looking, saying, "Okay, I'm going to make four hundred, three hundred bucks a month." off a door and um it was I, the idea i get it was really really clear to me it was how to scale it like you're talking about that was the problem right. and uh, the without the tax benefits that made it really difficult for me uh so we went into smaller which is funny because i i look at the smaller commercial and i'm like well a smaller commercial that i was doing is now basically the equivalent of a 
small little house in most first tier markets now, you know, and yet it was diversified doors. It was bigger. It was a commercial asset, which with with which had much better tax benefits for me. I got a lot of depreciation. We could accelerate the depreciation. There was huge advantages associated with that commercial asset. And the difference was not huge. I mean, you're talking about very uh, even the capital that went into it. Um, today, if you're looking to buy a single family house, you know, outside, uh, the Midwest, really you're spending a lot of money and yet I can find commercial assets that are diversified, that either have good tenants, right? All that stuff that has really good cash flow that I can buy at basically the same price. The equity portion today, I think for a lot of people are looking at most housing and going, this doesn't make sense. And, uh, commercial just not only does it pencil better, I believe today, but it also scales much better. So how did you go about scaling it? What did you do on the property management? Did you just simply focus on the syndication part? I mean, yeah. I mean, initially I was kind of like, all right, well, let me learn how to analyze deals. I mean, it took me 18 months to kind of I had the idea. I was like, well, yeah, this, this single family home stuff isn't going to scale. I logically understand that. Right. And the end is near, but you know, when you, you could imagine, you know, that stuff was working, right. It got me from $0 net worth to definitely over half a million dollars net worth at that mm-hmm. point. And this is the tricky part. Like everybody, when do you go from the, you know, the single stuff to you know, bigger deals, right. Or commercial assets. Well, it's different for everybody. It's kind of dictated on how much money you have and how much money you make, you know, your velocity every year. It's very similar. Like, you know, when, when does a guy skip college and go straight to the NBA, right? I guess you, yeah. you got to kind of go to college now for a year, but it wasn't the, the, quite the case. Um, but I would still say like a lot of, for a lot, most people, I, I still recommend, especially if they're under half a million dollars net worth mm-hmm. or even, like just go buy one rental property. You'll learn so much learn. by doing it. Um, and that's the hard thing about going into syndication deals is anybody these days can create a pitch deck and as a passive investor, it all looks super good. Right? Yes. Like how do you figure out what the sucker deals out there? Um, if you never own rental property, you can't just figure out, all right, they're buying 200 units at $80,000 or $120,000 a unit. The average rents are 900. You should automatically know that you're not going to cash flow on that thing, right? And a rental property owner with some little experience would know that. And if you know things happen throughout the the hold, like certain HVACs happen to go out, which mm-hmm. happen in the summertime when you fire it up after the winter time, a rental property owner would know and they would understand it. But perhaps a accredited investor yet experienced, which I call unsophisticated accredited, they freak out and they'd be too stressed out and they would not be on good behavior. And the syndicator would likely fire them and never let them invest again. Um, but yeah, they, I think part of this education and part of being going into syndication deals that I did was expanding my network to figure out who to work with. Right. Just like, it's just a reboot again, just like how I was trying to figure out who are these good turnkey providers, who are the good brokers, who are the good property managers. Same thing. Who are the good operators? What what places should I invest? How should I invest? It's all going to come from your peer network. Yes. And if you're just another rich guy, 
really, you know, add no value to other rich people, mm-hmm. right? It's good to have some more stories and some rental properties to kind of, you know, swap stories and you know, add value to interactions because it's all in the network. I love that. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's one of the reasons that, you know, obviously probably for you too, you do podcasting, things like that. It's to expand that network and grow those circle of influences um, as you scale. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what you're doing today. What is your focus area? What do you see in real estate? Where do you see opportunities? Where are you looking at putting capital? Yeah, so today um, I operate apartment buildings. So I syndicate apartment complexes. So I would say 70 to 80% of my portfolio is in that asset class. So I'm I'm an operator in that area. So of course I'm going to eat my own, my own cooking. But I also understand through interactions with much higher level investors, passive investors, that I want to diversify a little bit. Like right now, I mean, I think uh, multifamily, I mean, the prices didn't change one bit in the pandemic. I think that there's only upside to, to go up at this point. But if the institutions, I think you're starting to see the institutions now kind of find safe haven in multifamily. Right. They're running away from asset classes such as office space or you know, retail. And if that's the case, you know, multifamily is gonna get a little overheated, right? So it's good yeah. to be in different arenas, mobile home parks, self-storage, assisted living, um, like settlements, for example. Um, and so that's kind of where how I personally move around. But again, majority of my stuff as an operator is in the class B C little A minus multifamily workforce housing um, business plan is typically um, that little bit of value add, but stabilize assets from the get go. So we get that fatty name, Freddie Mac, not recourse dead off the beginning. And what markets are you looking at right now? What markets are you avoiding? Yeah. So I think, I think this is nothing new, right? Like red States, because we want to be landlords and with landlord friendly laws on our side. We definitely don't want to be in the Socialist Republic of California where you can yeah, kind of evict no people kidding. for not paying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we focus on kind of target a lot in the South because that's just where the the population is going, the old Sun Belt. So the states that I like, I mean, I've got deals in Phoenix. Uh, I mean, Texas is just on fire, right? I mean, Dallas is a little over, I think, overheated, definitely since 2012. Uh, but Houston kind of works these days. San Antonio has kind of gotten a little cold. I, I look at the rent increases per year. That's kind of what I, I kind of look at. That's to your me, metric? that is, yeah, that's really where, you know, you, yeah, you can look at population growth. You can look at job growth. You can look at a certain employers moving in. But I think that in the fishbone diagram, that really ties into, well, how does it impact demand, right? What is the square foot? What is the rent increases per year? Where are people paying on a, on a big level? Of course, you're looking at certain like some markets, which we're obviously not going to get into on a podcast kind of level. But in major markets, major MSAs, uh, we really like Huntsville, Alabama. That's kind of our sleepers, right? We have there's secondary markets and there's more tertiary markets. And I think as an investor, I want to be split amongst you know have my good secondary markets like my Phoenixes, my Houston's, uh, but I also want some sleepers in that. My, which are a little bit more higher cash flowing and a little bit more potential to pop, like a Huntsville, Alabama, or um, we had previously gone into Gulfport, Mississippi. 
that's a great example of a tertiary market. But yeah, I'm kind of more, I mean, I don't think it's kind of overheated, but I mean, it's so cash flow, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think some of the popular ones that people talk about are like Boise and Austin. To me, I think they're great markets. It's just they don't cash flow, so fit my strike zone. Yeah. Yeah. That's how, uh, you know, we're same thing where you look at those solid second tier markets that are growing that provide good opportunity to get in but we love the sleeper markets as well um the sleeper markets have been very good to us that are just outside some of those um second tier markets but the economics are the same right the economics of one fuels the other and as much as i believe in that first tier or that large second tier market um, and the success of it, it will fuel those third tier markets that maybe feed off of it. So, um, no, I think that's a great strategy uh, to have that everybody should be looking at. Now, when you're looking, though, at the rent increases, right, and the price per square foot, are you judging that when you say, okay, here's the rent increases per year? Are you looking at the ability to obtain those rent increases in the future? As in, are we taking is the income that is being taken from the individual do they have enough disposable income to sustain that are we seeing income increases going up at the same rate like how do you judge the sustainability of uh getting rate increases over a certain period of time or is that not really a metric that you're looking at i think that's maybe not a leading indicator but maybe a trailing indicator if that makes sense like i mean yeah you want the people's ability to pay, right? Like you're looking, a lot of times what you'll do is you'll draw a little circle and you're, you're trying to figure out the median income for that little circle, right? Whether it's a big circle, trying to stretch for data 10, 10 miles or, you know, better data, like a one, two mile radius, right? You're trying to find, can your, can you, that median income sustain one third of that to pay the rents, right? But I, you know, you'd be drawing circles all day around right in the beginning yeah. if you do that so that's why i kind of start off with like all right where what's major markets are where the rents going up and down or you know where where the rent increases are going up right because that's in to me an indicator of hey people have money they're like they're paying they're choosing and you have all these data points to pay more right and it's yeah. been going up and you can kind of see it and you can kind of see this the acceleration of that if there is or if it's steady but at that point, we get out of the data world, right? I think a lot of my like my engineering guys, they like get bogged in on this data. But I'm like, all right, once you get, you're on the MSA level, right? Now you need to start looking at it submarkets, and you're not mm-hmm. going to really get really good data on submarkets. It's going to be obsolete anyway. Yeah. So now, and even on that submarket, you're looking, all right, is it on that side of that block or this side of the block? Because it's very different. And this is where now you're look. We're looking for individual comps on apartments, right? Which hopefully are in the in, within the three to five mile radius. That are, if they're if it's a better comp, like you know a little bit newer, a little bit nicer, that's awesome, right? It just gives us data points that we're trying to interpolate between those comps. And ultimately, find settle on a rent per square foot number that we can use as a solid comp to kind of baseline ourselves against. And obviously, we're trying to find something that's lower, that's underperforming, and use that 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 line of best fit to kind of be our top line or goal, our performer, if you will. That makes sense. So you you solidify the macro, make sure it's good, but don't get stuck in 
you know, paralysis and uh, move yeah. to the micro and really focus on the execution side and which which property would execute better and what the downsides are to it based upon location. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, don't don't take my word. Don't call me on this. But like I could invest in a crappy MSA if the property is truly, you know, 200 bucks under market. Right? Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. I yeah. don't. As long as I can underwrite the deal with some other things in there that gives me a lot of buffer, yeah, I'll do that. But obviously, why do that? We want to invest with the trade winds at our back so that we can get lucked yes. out, hopefully, by if we do everything right, how we're supposed to, and then the trade winds in comes and, and kicks us into the next year, right? I and mean, this is how, I mean, we've kind of doubled people's money in like under three years doing this. Yeah. Right? When you underwrite the right way with the right reversion cap rates, and then when the market improves, I mean, that's just all gravy. That's just you know accelerating to the goal a lot faster. And do you hold everything, or are you selling, and what, what is your execute or what's your exit strategy look like? What's your goal on the, those? The goal is to grow investor capital as quick as possible through value add and force appreciation. Right, that's when you're doing. It. You're not doing it when you're just sitting in a property and cash flowing. But you want that option, right? In case there's a recession, that you can just bend down the hatches, and slow down rehabs, or maybe get the rehabs done cheaper at that point. But the main thing is you cash flow. And you kind of weather the storms because there will be storms, mm -hmm. but you know, it depends on the deal, right? Like, I mean, we have a couple of deals in Mississippi, like I mentioned that we're not super bullish on the area. So the game plan is there. Like once we rehab most of the units, we'll pop that thing on the market and probably exit. But in most of the places, I mean, that when we make a call, we're going there. It's typically holds true for a long time, if not forever. So at that case, we reevaluate and maybe we refinance out money, which investors like because that's a cash out refinance. Mm -hmm. It's not tax. Yep. And you retain equity and keep cash flowing and maybe you split that into several deals. Yep. And, and you just hold on for a legacy hold. I mean, anything longer than seven years in commercial is very long time. It's kind of like doggy years. Yeah. But no, I mean, that's, that's, that's the ideal strategy, right? Infinite return mm -hmm. is kind of the, the coin term. Yeah, no, I could not agree more. That's exact our strategy. Three-year refi, money out tax-free, and then infinite returns from there, hold forever. Um, property improves. We can improve cash flows more. Turn around, refinance it out, and do it again with those equity levels. Make sure they're appropriate. And what are you putting down? Like what 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 are your what are your levels that you're putting down? And then when you refinance, what kind of are you doing non-recourse? What are you refinancing into? Yeah, well, we go into non-recourse off the bat, okay? Because um, I'm usually one signing on the debt, mm -hmm. as I preferred, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, but that's what's nice about multifamily. I don't know too much about self-storage, but multifamily, you know, we got the Fannie Mae Freddie Mac agency debt, and some, and we've gotten in a couple of these FHA loans too, which takes a lot longer to originate, which is kind of a pain. But I mean, you're talking 35-year amortization under 3% interest rate right now. That's um, incredible. Kind of phenomenal. But yeah, usually depending on the market, like if it's a tier one market, like a, in like a Texas, like a Dallas or a Phoenix, the lenders will go up higher in terms of leverage, but more tertiary market, they'll maybe kind of downgrade it five, 10%, a little less, giving you less leverage. But I mean, 
that's the name of the game, right? We're here to make money and we want to maximize the leverage so that we still cash flow, right? Yeah. 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 Very different from self-storage. We're putting in at 70-30. Um, I'm holding the debt personally till we can refinance. Then we refinance into non-recourse, usually because a lot of improvements need to be made. And that upside has pretty hefty prepayment penalties, how we're looking at it. Um, but yeah, different different kind of game in there. I mean, that's those kind of numbers blow me away. When you know, hearing that, it's like, wow, no, we don't have, <laughs> we don't have that yeah. option. <laughs> so that's that's incredible. Yeah, but it's also why potentially multifam is a little more competitive too, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe that's where self storage definitely has a level up. Like, there's not too many people that you have to compete with, right? Which is why we try to get away from the lower end class C's because that's where a lot of you know mom and pop new multifamily operators come in. They don't have access to, you know, like we just closed like a 300 unit. I mean, not many people can get $9 million of capital to go after an asset like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And do you find the higher up you go, the more, you know, it's hard because the higher up you go in self-storage, it's much more competitive, right? After those assets, you have a lot more institutional monies flowing in and competing against it. How do you find your deals when you're dealing in institutional level assets? I mean, it's still, it's, it's very fragmented, right? I mean, it's yes. same thing with us, right? When we go, to, you know, when you go above 250 units, you're potentially starting to, you know, fight with some of the big sharks out there. And, and the big sharks are those institutional funds that you're mentioning. And the hard thing about them is they don't care about making return too big returns for their investors. You know, yeah. These are just the insurance companies and pension funds, and yep, you know, they they can overpay. Yes, um, but the key is just obviously stay around above the mom and pop investors buying you know properties under one or two million dollars. So there's a sweet spot between maybe two and twenty five million that you can compete in, and just hopefully you don't compete with a stupid shark from a pension fund or mm-hmm. an institution. Um, I mean, sometimes they get involved and you're like, all right, well, let's not yep. do this one. <laughs> yep, got to walk that's away. Just, yeah, that's just how it is. But um, yeah, I mean, for, the, for us, you know, I think if you're, if you're kind of staying around, you know, under 300 units, most times you don't really have to deal with one of these stupid buyers coming in from the institutions. Um, when you get above that that threshold, you know, especially like people who like follow Grant Cardone, like those are the type of assets he, he does, right? Which yeah. is why the deals aren't that strong, right? He's kind of projecting two xing in ten years, which is yeah. a really, really long time. Really long um, time. That is not. I mean, yeah. that's crazy for me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that's just you know he's kind of acting like an institution yeah. in a way, and and that's fine. That's a that's yeah. a business. That's, if you can market the heck and get a lot of investors and so be it man that's good yeah, for him exactly that's his play and it works works well it's it's one of the great things i think about investing is depending on your niche depending on your focus um you can go into totally different areas and your playbook can be different and you can capitalize on that it's something that we found with self-storage you know when we got into it nobody was in it and it was like you know or not that nobody was in it it just 
nobody was talking about it, right? <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, a nice asset to get into, and that became our playbook. So we ended up sticking with it at, you know, this given time in the market, we're a lot like you, we're looking at saying, okay, how do we diversify? And in our large developments, we're saying, should we be diversifying as in we're going to build um, apartments and other asset classes with our self-storage? And that's really kind of what we're looking at now, this idea of uh, build your own economy that I have. It's like your assets all correlate and they feed off each other. So if I'm building a 200,000 square foot storage facility, and then I'm also building alongside that a 600 unit apartment complex, those things fuel each other. They feed off each other, you know, and it also diversifies my holdings. And so we've been looking a lot at this given time in the market and and, and doing that. And that's got a couple developments we're doing. Do you do any developments or is it all just acquisition for you? Um, we're starting to build some like they're class A, but they're definitely in the workforce housing kind of sector. Um, we just started like a 230 unit in Huntsville. Okay. Um, we started that last year. Um, and we're trading, so we're trading off the class C stuff for, you know, new builds. You could probably argue that developments are a little bit more riskier, but depending, I mean, if you, we're building that thing at like 130,000 per unit, I mean, it's, that's a no brainer. Right. I mean, if you get the damn thing built without too much cost overruns or even with a lot of cost overruns, um, which, oh, which is why we use a guarantee maximum price contract in this particular deal. So we can kind of push that risk off to the contractor. Yeah, we, we're doing the same things right now. We're, we're looking at um, hard bids where we can come in. I would rather be able to, especially right now, the fluctuations in steel prices and lumber and everything else like that are so high. Those aren't risks I want to take on. And at this point in the market, like you said, I mean, we're upon stabilization, we're talking double or more cost, not equity cost. And you're going, this doesn't make sense when in competitive markets, storage facilities are selling at five caps, which doesn't, that doesn't make any right. sense to me. It's that, you know, you're talking apartment level almost in a lot of these asset classes. And this is obviously uh, first tier markets, but um, that, you know, you we worry and focus a lot on overbuilt markets and supply and demand. But as long as you're, you're, um, very, very comfortable with those things. So our developments tend to be in stronger second tier markets, right? I'm not going into, maybe I would acquire an asset that has high cash flow and really good turnaround in a stable, but growing third tier market, but I probably am not going to develop there. Um, how do you look at the comparison between your developments and acquisitions? I mean, we just kind of parlay the developments where we have a good stranglehold on, you know, at least 500, a thousand units. That's Oh, I like that. The, the the thing is, I think the way we're looking at it, and maybe it's this is kind of similar to where you what you're doing is we have the team set up, we have the systems, and we have the mm -hmm. we have that that kind of built in there. And part of that is, you know, maybe we can potentially package up these assets into a portfolio and sell it to one of those those institutions in the future. But for now, I mean, it's just it's just a matter of hey. I got I got to get on a flight. Might as well just go to one place, right? No, <laughs> just seriously. But uh, but use the same pro uh, property management team, construction team in one general MSA. No, and and it is very similar. At this point, we have integrated our management side, um, everything else. So 
um, parlaying that over into a development yeah. in markets, particularly that we know, understand, or been around. It's a no brain. Not that it's a no brainer, but it's lower risk for us and for us to take on. So the high risk is actually buying a you know twenty million dollar facility that I can build for nine million. Yeah, but I, but I think like you know, kind of getting back to that those numbers. Like if I can build something for one hundred thirty thousand dollars a unit. And even though, like right now, the only the risks there are is like lumber prices for us. Um, we don't do too much steel, like maybe because the self storage is more steel stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, self storage is all steel. <laughs> I mean, worst worst case scenario, right? Lumber doubles, which isn't really going to happen. I don't see that yeah. happening. Yeah. I mean, that makes us makes the cost go up maybe to like one thirty five per unit, right? It's just oh, yeah, we're talking. We, we complain about it, but it's in the whole grand scheme of thing. It's not, not much. Yeah. But the cost to buy a new class A, I mean, now you're talking like over $200,000 a unit. Yeah. And we're still well under there. Shoot, even if we built it for 150, 160, we're still well under that. And housing like is becoming that, more unaffordable too. That's the thing about the economics of development right now that are good is, first of all, the cost of money. Um, but second of all, the fundamentals. Like housing's crazy expensive for the vast majority of Americans. Um, it just is. And at least in my areas that we're looking at second tier markets, multifamily is coming up, but they can't, they literally can't build it fast enough. We have a shortage of units in most our markets. And I'm talking overall housing units, apartments, multifamily, it doesn't matter. There is a, a shortage. So increases are coming in these markets that are not only sustainable, but rising. And it's not uh, propped up fake demand. It's not like it was before 2007, where this is, but these are people that need somewhere to live. Like they actually need a roof over their head. Um, and that's not changing. It's not changing anytime soon. So if you're building at 130,000 a unit, um, I mean, it's it, for all the markets that I'm in and I'm looking at, that is a no brainer. Like, why wouldn't you? And do one that? one interesting nuance that I kind of discovered. So we have like another development. They they're kind of doing a little bit more low end than us. Uh, I don't know why people would want to build class B. It makes no sense. It's the same cost per per unit. Mm -hmm. Building that or A, but uh, I mean they're so the way they work. They're more of an institution, so they have to kind of have cash flow from the property build up to pay for more construction, right? Whereas the way we do it, and, and I think this is the way you would think you would want to do it, is we're a lot more nimble, right? We raise all the capital up front, we go and property capitalize, so we don't have to cannibalize our own cash flow to get the pro that project done, right? But in an institutional world, this is the way they, they'll do a lot of these things, right? They'll let the cash flow pay for a lot of repairs, um, which, uh, it, you know, it's real estate and a cash flow, so it eventually happens. So I guess it can't. It's not a horrible strategy, but to me, I mean, I like the the idea of just ripping off the bandaid or yeah. just getting it done, getting it done, and then, then refinancing and getting it out and moving on to the next. Well, one. and I look at the cost of revenue associated with those, uh, the cost of revenue that in which you could charge that is associated with those upgrades. Um, so if we have to wait to accumulate, upgrade, charge more. There is a loss of revenue potential in that time for accrual. 
Um, and that loss is real. We do the same. We'll buy. We upfront cost for improvements, everything else, build it in, and then we get aggressive on being competitive in the marketplace. So the cash flow in return will increase, which we find is more sizable outside than trying to purchase, accrue, then change. But that's in self storage. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff is just out of reach of the mom and pop investor, right? Yeah. Which, what I started with turnkey is a great way to get started, but just missing out on all the force appreciation. I mean, force appreciation is way, way stronger than um, compound interest, yeah. right? I mean, it's, I mean, Isaac Newton didn't know about force appreciation or whoever made up with that thing, right? <laughs> but for the layperson, that's all you got is cash yeah. flow, right? Like a simple turnkey rental, or just simple cash flows, which is good, I guess, or at least. I thought it was good. It's getting but, started. Yeah. You got to get started. Because and it, But you're right. And I think it's important for anybody that's looking even at getting started, though. Investing is not a solo game, right? They're self-made like is such a I, – I feel like it's an abusive word because it hurts the people's mindsets. They're like, oh, you did it all by yourself. That's not how it is. Like think about all the people that goes into making investing successful, all the people you had to learn from, all the masterminds, all the people that you network with now, investors. And like when you're getting started, reaching out to people like you, right? Getting educated, start doing, combining um, learned knowledge with, right, um, active knowledge, putting these things together, uh, it's it's a process. It's growing. You just don't start and all of a sudden you're successful and you know everything. So I love this idea. You started in these little houses, right? You build up, you focused on your network, masterminds, you learned more, you leveled up, you started syndication, and now where you're at, you're building apartment buildings, you own all this portfolio and everything, but it all started small. So that's awesome. Well, I know you have a meeting that you got to go to, so I don't want to take up all your time here, um, but where can people get a hold of you? Where can people find you? Where should they reach out to learn more? Yeah, so if people are kind of just getting started, I would say get started with a single family home. Um, they can go to my website, simplepassivecashflow.com slash turnkey, get like the starting rental guide there. Uh, my first 12 podcasts back in 2016 were all about single family home rentals. Um, but they're more tactual back then. But as I became more of an accredited investor, obviously the story has kind of switched to syndications and private placements. Uh, other tax and legal strategies, but um, but yes, yeah, um, podcast is simple passive cash flow. Uh, it's kind of a follow my journey type of podcast. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate you being on. And I gotta just ask: Is that really the ocean I can hear in the background? Uh, no, that's the uh, air conditioner because it's kind of hot now. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks, man. We appreciate you having on, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> okay, thanks, AJ. Easy. Yeah. <laughs>